I invite you to make your way to Isaiah 35. The message today is entitled Unending Joy. We're going to look at the entirety of this chapter as it's only 10 verses. As we think about this theme of joy, I believe everyone seeks joy whether they realize it or not. People seek joy in possessions and the things that they own and hold on to, the material aspect of the world. Some people seek joy through experiences and entertainment. Other people try to form their life circumstances in such a way that they think they're going to find joy. And then others are looking for recognition and validation from others, perhaps notoriety in the world, and they're trying to find their joy in that. There was a really long-standing secular study that was conducted on the subject of joy. And what they did was they tracked 724 people over a time frame of 75 years. And they asked about practical matters like their work and their home lives and their health and more. And what they were trying to discover is what is it that people think brings them happiness and health? And the key finding in the study, what they discovered, is that relationships are central to the happiness of human beings. This secular study focused on the fact that connections to family and friends and community are what really make people in a place where they would describe themselves as happy or joyful. Now, from a spiritual perspective... We know that joy comes from and focuses on a relationship with God. Admittedly, sometimes joy and happiness are a little bit difficult to define, but I would say that they're not only difficult to define, they're even a little bit more challenging to distinguish. Joy comes from an inner expression of the soul, and happiness is an outward expression in your life. So I think the main thing in understanding joy and happiness is to think about the fact that joy begins internally, spiritually, in your soul, and happiness is expressed externally, outwardly, in your life. Compassion International has a piece that defines the difference between joy and happiness that I like a lot. They said joy is a little word while happiness is a bigger word. Joy is in the heart, while happiness is on the face. Joy is of the soul, while happiness is of the moment. Joy transcends, happiness reacts. Joy runs deep and overflows, while happiness hugs hello. Joy is profound and scriptural, happiness is a balm. And then they said this, A person pursues happiness, but they choose joy. They pursue happiness, but they choose joy. Choose joy, practice joy, know joy, live joy, and feel happiness. Now Isaiah, who wrote this passage that we have before us today, prophesied from around 739 B.C. to 681 B.C. The time frame was under the reign of four kings in Judah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
Isaiah likely lived in Jerusalem giving his, given his concern for the city. And he was a contemporary of the prophets Jonah, Amos, Hosea, and Micah. Now it's thought that Isaiah prophesied in the time frame from being a very young person at about the age of 15 all the way up to being an older person at the age of 85. Tradition says that his life came to an untimely end. Under the wicked king Manasseh, he was placed in a hollow log, according to tradition, and they sawed him in two. Probably the reference that is in Hebrews 11 and verse 37. I tell you that because this was not a man who had it easy. This was not a man who uh, did not face obstacles or uh, persecution or difficulties. He served in a difficult time. Yet in the midst of all of that, he can tell us something under the power of God about joy. He was serving a people, the people of Israel, who had in effect turned their backs on God and were facing the chastisement of God because of their sin. And they were under attack by the wicked Assyrians. They were naturally concerned for their future. And Isaiah writes to tell them that there is a better day coming. And that better day that was coming focused on a king and his kingdom. On the Messiah and the deliverance that he would bring. Isaiah's name means the salvation of Yahweh. And I think he presents one of the clearest emphases on Jesus Christ in all of the Old Testament. From his virgin birth in chapter 7 to his sacrificial death in chapters 52 and 53 to a proclamation of the gospel in chapter 61 and more. Isaiah being the fullest revelation of Christ in the Old Testament is often referred to as the gospel according to Isaiah. And I'm going to come back to that in just a moment. In Isaiah 12 and verse 2, he says, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Now, I want you to understand for context here that we will note in Isaiah 35, the principle of dual fulfillment in prophecy. We run into this time and again in the Old Testament because there are prophecies that are presented that were intended to be a real-time fulfillment sometime in the span of history in which the prophet was speaking. But then also there's more to come. There's still something remaining that is yet to happen. And these prophecies have both a near-term and a long-term fulfillment. The near-term fulfillment of Isaiah 35 would be the birth of Jesus the Messiah into the world in fulfillment of those words that Isaiah had prophesied some seven centuries before. The long-term fulfillment of Isaiah 35 will ultimately be the time period between the tribulation period and the millennial kingdom. Remember, the tribulation uh, is the time when God's righteous judgment will be poured out in the future. It will end with the battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. So what Isaiah is doing is, in effect, in chapter 35, he's picking up after Jesus has returned to provide insight into what life will be like under Jesus the King in his millennial kingdom. 
and then ultimately in his eternal kingdom. And the vision that he presents for us is that all of creation will experience a time of restoration. That God will reverse the curse on mankind and on creation and he will bring renewal. And in that, Isaiah 35 presents the promise of salvation to Israel, but also the promise of salvation to us, to all who believe in the Christ, the Savior. So let's begin reading in Isaiah 35 and verse 1. The word of God says, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The desert will rejoice and blossom like a wildflower. It will blossom abundantly and will also rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the weak hands, steady the shaking knees. Say to the cowardly, be strong, do not fear. Here is your God. Vengeance is coming. God's retribution is coming. He will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, verse 5, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground will become like a pool, and the thirsty land springs. In the haunt of jackals, in their lairs, there will be grass, reeds, and papyrus. A road will be there, and a way it will be called the holy way. The unclean will not travel on it, but it will be for the one who walks the path. Fools will not wander on it. There will be no lion there, and no vicious beast will go up on it. They will not be found there, but the redeemed will walk on it. And the redeemed of the Lord will return and come to Zion with singing, crowned with unending joy. Joy and gladness will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee. I want to ask and answer this question in these next few moments that we have together. How can we discover unending joy? How can we discover unending joy? There's some of you here today who can say confidently, I am living in the unending joy of God. And there's a peace in your life. There's a confidence, there's an assurance, there's a strength because of your relationship with God. There are others of you here who don't yet know God. You've not experienced the gift and you're not experiencing the joy that God has for you. And in this focus today, I want to encourage those of you who already have the joy to stand strong and to know that the Lord is faithful regardless of whatever you're going to face in the future. And for those of you who do not yet know that joy, I pray that you'll come to experience it now and always. First of all, there is unending joy for all who are saved by God. You'll note here in verse 1 where he speaks of the wilderness and the dry land and the desert. He says something amazing is going to happen there. It's going to rejoice and it's going to blossom like a wildflower. After the judgment on the nations that's described in Isaiah 34, God promises to bring salvation. So I think sort of what's happening in this text is Isaiah has told us in chapter 34 about the judgment of God because of disobedience. 
And now he's taking a, a sharp turn and he's saying, let me tell you about the joy of God. Let me tell you about what he's going to do in the future. Yes, there's judgment coming. Yes, there's the reality of that. But there's a way that is an eternal blessing in the joy of God. Judah was going to be restored after the invasion of the Assyrians was turned back. Um, I think this is also true in a modern day sense in the way uh, Israel has turned the desert uh, to where it has blossomed as a rose. But it's going to be ultimately true when God restores it in the future. Verse 3 says, strengthen the weak hands and steady the shaking knees. You'll note here that this is quoted in Hebrews 12 and verse 12. And that's important because Isaiah is making the point that even in the chastening of the Lord, even when the Lord's hand of discipline is upon you, you can draw strength and courage because you have a father who loves you and cares for you. You have a father who will strengthen your weak hands, and he will steady your shaking knees. It says in verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. You remember when John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, was in prison? He, he became a little bit discouraged, and he began to wonder if Jesus was in fact the Messiah. And John's disciples brought the question to Jesus, and Jesus replied in Matthew 11 and verse 4 through 6, and he said, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus made a direct reference in that moment when he was asked this question to Isaiah 35 and verse 5. And what he was saying, in essence, was that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. He is the Messiah. He is the long-promised one. And when people look to him, there are some things that happen supernaturally that can happen by the power of none other. Because Jesus the Messiah came to bring God's salvation and his arrival would be accompanied with miraculous power. Now verse 4 says that while God's retribution is coming, he will save you. And I love the way Matthew Henry referenced these particular verses. He said, God will appear for you against your enemies. He will recompense both their injuries and your losses. The Messiah will come in the fullness of time to take vengeance on the powers of darkness, to spoil them and to make a show of them openly, to recompense those that mourn in Zion with abundant comforts. Your God will come who pleads your cause and owns your interest, even God himself, who is God alone. Now, I've already referenced that Isaiah is often called the gospel according to Isaiah, because there's so much in here about the Messiah and about the salvation that comes from God. And I want to give you very quickly just an overview of uh, the many passages that are in Isaiah that refer to the Messiah and all of the beauty and the power that surrounds him. In chapter 12, in verse 3, there's a reference to the wells of salvation. 
you will draw water out of the wells of salvation, meaning that God is our constant, never-ending source of salvation, hope. Chapter 25 and verse 9 refers to the joy of salvation. We will make glad and rejoice in his salvation. Did you know that the first fruit of salvation is rejoicing? That there's something that happens in us when we realize that we've been made right with the God who created us and gave us life, that there's rejoicing in our soul because we've been made new in him. Chapter 26 and verse 1 refers to the walls of salvation. We have a strong city and God makes salvation its walls and its ramparts. So when the Bible is speaking of the walls of salvation, it's speaking of your security in God. That when you belong to God, there is nothing that can remove you from him. That the walls of salvation are around you and the gift of God has been given to you eternally. Everlasting salvation is referenced in chapter 45 and verse 17. Israel shall be saved with an everlasting salvation. Our salvation is without end. It is continuous. It is certain. Or what about the day of salvation in chapter 49 and verse 8? In the day of salvation, I will help you. Now, I want to slow down here just for a moment. Because every person who is saved has experienced a day of salvation. What I mean by that is that there's nobody who just grows up in a Christian home and just by virtue of having grown up in a Christian home becomes a Christian. Uh, They're automatically. Uh, There's also not anybody who just attends church and they're just a Christian by virtue of their attending church. That's not how it works. How it works is that there is a day of salvation for every individual. And let me tell you what happens at that day of salvation. It's at that day of salvation when we are confronted with the truth claim about who God is. We understand who we are. We recognize God's holiness and our sin. And we realize that there is a separation between us and God. And when we realize that God has provided the way for us to come back to him, to have our sins forgiven to be given the gift of eternal life, to know that we have a home in heaven, then on that day of salvation, that is when we repent and we believe in the gospel. And our hearts and our lives are changed eternally. And if you've experienced that day of salvation, you know it. You've got a testimony. You've got a story to tell about that moment when God changed your life. You say, well, pastor... I don't have a day of salvation that I can recall. Well, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today could be your day of salvation. Today could be the moment when you are delivered from death to life. Today could be the moment when you're rescued from darkness and you're placed in the light. Today could be the day when you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. When you are rescued from hell and you're on your way to heaven. Today could be the day of your salvation. If you only believe. He speaks also of the feet of the heralds of salvation in chapter 52 and verse 7. How beautiful in the mountains are the feet of those who bring the good news. Paul reiterates that in in Romans. Uh, We are saved because somebody brought the message of Jesus to us. Might have been a parent. Might have been a family member. Might have been a friend. Might have been a Sunday school teacher. Might have been a pastor. Might be some way that we encountered the gospel that gospel got brought to us somehow. 
And then the spread of salvation in verse 10 of chapter 52, all the earth will see the salvation of our God. You understand this salvation is not just for us. This salvation is intended for all nations. And when we pray and we think about giving to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, and we think about our sacred responsibility and the stewardship of the gospel to take the gospel down the street and around the world, what we are recognizing is that God desires to draw people to himself from every tribe, tongue, every nation of the earth. And it's that Revelation 7, 9 vision. When we get to heaven someday, there are going to be people there from the furthest corners of the earth. And we're going to be singing one united chorus. Worthy is the Lamb. The arm of salvation in chapter 59 and verse 16. His own arm works salvation for him. The helmet of salvation in chapter 59 and verse 17. God gives us armor to defend ourselves. The garments of salvation in chapter 61 and verse 10. The light of salvation in chapter 62 and verse 1. And on and on I could go. There is no shortage of grace. This salvation flows fully and freely. Now, we've experienced a lot of shortages the last couple of years. Basic things that we ought to be able to access easily. Can't find them. They're not there. They're not delivered. And you wonder when you're going to be able to get them. Um, And with all these supply chain issues, they've continuously grown. Uh, Not only that, but inflation, I read last week, has hit a 40-year high in our current circumstance. Shortages, high cost, hard to get it. But friends, when it comes to salvation and the unending joy from God, there's no shortage. It's abundant. The gospel is for all who will believe. It is freely given. Grace is overflowing. And while it was costly to God, it comes to us as a free gift. But as any good gift, this gift has to be received. And Jesus Christ is the demonstration of God to us in endless generosity. Let me say it to you this way. God is the greatest giver of all. And God has given the greatest gift that's ever been given. And it's to be received. Someone said Christ is not our offering to God, but God's offering to us. The king became poor so that we could be spiritually and eternally rich. How can we discover unending joy? Well, second, there's unending joy for all who walk in the holiness of God. We've already made reference here to verses 5 through 7, where the sick and the diseased are healed when God's salvation comes. This is referencing miraculous power that accompanies the God. It's a miracle for the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to run and the mute to speak. But ultimate healing is spiritual healing. That's ultimate healing. And Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So I want us to think about this parallel that we find here in these verses about the holy way. Look specifically at verse 8. A road will be there and a way, it will be called the holy way. We can refer to this as the highway of holiness. 
And I think the, the term in the original language refers literally to a raised road that would have been lifted up high above the ground. And in ancient times, a, a good road was at a premium because a good road for travel and for business and for progress, that was a major thing. And even today, we understand the value of a good road. We understand the value of access. We understand the value of being able to get from one place to another. And here's what I think is happening with this illustration. A literal symbol is used to teach us a spiritual reality. A literal symbol is used to teach us a spiritual reality. This is the only time that this phrase is used in the scripture. Referring to a royal road. In ancient times, powerful kings would build roadways for themselves through their kingdoms. And these roads were built high above the surrounding land. And these roads kept the king from being slowed down in his progress. And the people could see that it was the king who was on this highway. And what Isaiah is doing is he is announcing that in the ministry of the Messiah, there would be a wonderful highway. There would be this highway that is called the highway of holiness. And it's the only road that we want to be on. And I think it also corresponds with the narrow way that leads to everlasting life. This isn't the broad way. This is the narrow way, the road to holiness. I love the way Charles Spurgeon put it. And again, he's writing long before uh, the modern times that we enjoy now. But he said, engineering has done much to tunnel mountains and to bridge abysses. But the greatest triumph of engineering is that which made a way from sin to holiness, from death to life, from condemnation to perfection. Who could make a road over the mountains of our iniquities but an almighty God? None but the love of the Lord would have wished it. None but the God of wisdom could have devised it. And none but the God of power could have carried it out. Church, this highway of holiness is the way by which we are saved. And it's the road by which we will enter eternal Zion. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The desert sees the glory and the majesty of God as Christ leads his people through the desert. Now remember, all judgment is entrusted to Jesus. And yet at the same time, he's the one who personally delivers us from the judgment. So nobody will be able to say on the day of judgment that God has not done right. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's a rhetorical question because the judge of the earth always does what is right. And when Jesus Christ is entrusted judgment by the Father, it will be a righteous judgment. And he has offered us his righteousness so that we might be delivered from it. You might have read somewhere along the way about the Pan American Highway. It's a network of roads that stretches across the Americas for some 19,000 miles. According to the Guinness Book of World Records, it's the longest what they call motorable road. Uh, they call it that because there is a point at which it can only be continued on uh, by crossing some water. And it passes through diverse climates and ecological systems and 
Some parts of it are passable only seasonably. And the idea was a good idea because they thought when they built it that it could become an inter-American highway that would link North, Central, and South America. This road begins in Prudhoe Bay, Alaska, and it stretches to the tip of Argentina. Technically, anyone can travel on it, but the problem is there are parts of it that are highly dangerous and other parts of it that have extremely low points so that you can only cross if you have the proper vehicle. And the message that we're finding here in Isaiah 35 is that in the Messiah, what God is going to do for us on this highway of holiness is he's going to remove all of the obstacles and yet we're going to receive all of the blessings. He's going to take away all of the dangers and yet he's going to give us all of the blessings. And I think in part this could point to the fulfillment of the prophecy as the Jews would return from captivity. But there is a broader context. It is the way of holiness that is reserved only for those who have the righteousness of God. Christ alone provides the way of holiness. Notice what it says in the second part of verse 8. The unclean will not travel on it but it will be for the one who walks the path. So only the righteous are going to travel on that road. So here's what God is doing. God is making this way for us through his son, through the Messiah, and it is a clear path. And that clear path is is secured through the righteousness of Jesus. And when you have the righteousness of Jesus, you can travel on this way because he is the way. And it is the way of safety. He says here in verse 9 and 10, No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. It's the way of joy. In verse 10, it says, They will enter Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. Gladness and joy will overtake them. So I ask you today, first of all, are you on the highway of holiness? Are you out there on that broad road that leads to destruction that is filled with danger and detours? Or are you on the narrow way, the way of holiness that leads to everlasting life? And then I also ask you, are you progressing on the way of holiness? Are you experiencing the joy of the Lord as you travel on it? And are you inviting other people to join you on the journey? This is a trip that everybody can take. This is a trip that we want many people to experience the joy of. This is a destination that we want as many people as possible to arrive at when we get to that heavenly city whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're working toward in our lives, and it's all by the grace of God, all of him, and it's simply our response to him in faith. How can we discover the unending joy? Well, third, there's unending joy for all who are destined to live in the presence of God. I want you to note here in verse 10, this reference to being ransomed. What is ransom? Well, it's the price that is paid to redeem or to set free. So the price for redemption is paid by God himself. And by the grace of God, we can have a beautiful inheritance of an eternal relationship with God. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. 
It's a gladness of heart that comes from knowing Jesus. You remember even before the birth of Jesus, Mary's song attested to the joy that Jesus would bring. When Jesus was born, the angels announced glad tidings of great joy. Because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we can be crowned with unending joy both now and forever. And I think about the psalmist David, King David, who was content with what God had given him. He was an imperfect man. He was a broken man who was restored by God. And even so, he's described as a man after God's own heart. And he wrote in Psalm 16 and verse 5 and 6, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. See, what I think David was expressing in Psalm 16 and the surrounding verses as well was his priority focus on God. You know, one of the main reasons I think so many people lack this unending joy, God's not priority one. He's an afterthought. He's secondary. He fits in only when it's convenient or when we're in a crisis or when we need something. He's not front and center in our hearts. And the only way that you can find your contentment in God is if he is the priority of your life. You see, God shows us the road to life and is the highway of holiness through faith in Jesus. And there's only one road that leads to the eternal presence of God. And God's presence assures the fullness of joy. Now, I want you to imagine with me just for a moment a time when there will be no more sorrow, no more fear, no more worry, no more doubt, no more sin. What a day that will be. But that's the promise of what the presence of God will be like. The abundant life Peace, freedom, rest. You can find shallow and temporary entertainment in this life, temporary excitement. But I want you to know the highest and best eternal joy is found only in the presence of God now and forever. The world wants you to believe that if you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to have to give a bunch of stuff up, that, that, that God's pulling a fast one on you, so to speak, that it's going to be misery because you're becoming a Christian, all these things that you have to let go of. And what the world wants you to believe, and ultimately our spiritual enemy wants you to believe, is that God is not telling you the truth about this everlasting joy. And that what is temporary is better than what is eternal. And the temptation for us is to exchange the truth of God for a lie. You may have read or at least heard of the fictional work, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. 
And he wrote it in the voice of the devil complaining about the unfair advantage that God has against their works of darkness. And Lewis wrote from that perspective, God's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses, they're only a facade or only like foam on the seashore out at sea. Out in his sea, he says, there is pleasure and more pleasure. And God makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And then he says, I don't think he has the least inkling of that high and austere mystery to which we rise in the miserific vision. He's vulgar, I tell you, Wormwood. He's filled his world full of pleasures. There are things for humans to do all day long without his minding in the least. Sleeping, washing, eating, drinking, playing, praying, working. And then Lewis wrote this. Everything has to be twisted before it's any use to us. We fight under cruel disadvantages. Nothing is naturally on our side. Obviously, this is written in irony, but the point is well made, and I hope it's well taken for you. When you follow the way of holiness through the righteousness of Jesus, and you're on your way to live eternally in the presence of God, you're gaining everything that is of value. Blessings and pleasures forevermore. You are following a God whose presence includes the open hand of blessing. God has an open hand of blessing. And because God has an open hand of blessing, we can have joy. And because joy is supernatural in its origin, that means that we can have it even in the midst of the trials of life. We can have it even if our lives end like Isaiah's life reportedly ended. The joy is still ours for the taking. And nobody can take it from us. And we are guaranteed joy in heaven eternally with God. I close with this in the last part of verse 10. Joy and gladness will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee. My response to that would be, make it so in our lives. Make it so in our lives, our loving Heavenly Father. Let's bow our heads together for a moment. This invitation today, this time of response after the close of the service, is twofold. In just a moment, Pastor Eric's going to come and he's going to sing closing chorus of amazing grace with us and then I'm going to come back to close out the service but this invitation is twofold number one if you've never experienced the day of salvation today could be the day for you your life could change in an instant if you'll confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead You'll be saved. Today could be the day of your salvation. Second part of it is, I know enough to know that there are any number of Christians listening to this message today 
who aren't experiencing in their lives unending joy. There might even be an emptiness, a hurt, a heartbreak, a doubt, a fear. And I'm here to tell you that God will receive all of those if you'll bring them to him. He already knows what's on your heart. He already knows what you're thinking. But would you bring it to him and say, Father, I want to experience the joy. And I want to live in light of the blessings that you promised me. And I believe that God will meet you in that prayer. I believe he'll help you where you are if you'll trust him. Father, we're so thankful today that what you offer is forever. It's freely given to us through your son, even though it was costly to you. And I pray that we would receive the gift and share it freely. Stir in us joy that is joy that comes from the fruit of the Spirit. And give us a desire to share that with others. That they would too know that there's something lasting. Filled with purpose. And eternal in your presence. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.